Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. This is episode 92 of the Garden DC podcast. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. We're joined by Carol J. Michael, garden blogger, author, speaker, and podcaster. And we're taking a lighthearted look at some universal gardening truths. Also in this episode, the plant profile is on paper bush, otherwise known as Edgeworthia. And I'll share what's in my winter garden plot, as well as some upcoming events. This episode, we're joined by Carol J. Michael. She is an award-winning author of several self-published books on gardening, humor, and one children's book, and she's also a garden podcaster. Welcome, Carol. Thanks, Kathy, for having me. It's exciting. Yay. Well, I'm glad you're excited to join us. I'm excited to have you. It's always great to have a fellow garden communicator on the podcast so we can talk shop. Yes, let's talk shop. (laughs) So our topic today, we're going to talk about our shared gardening experiences, maybe some humorous ones, maybe some that, you know, might elicit a little bit of, oh, I've done that. I've been there, right? And we'll talk also about maybe some heartbreaks we've had in gardening and and some learning experiences as well. Uh, But before we dive into all of that, let's talk a little bit about Carol and how she became a gardener. So were you born with chlorophyll in your veins? I believe that I was born with chlorophyll in my veins, and I remember gardening with my dad when I was a toddler. And so given my age, I would say I have about 60 years of gardening experience now. And I just always loved it. And we talk in the family about who got the gardening genes, and they always look straight at me and say, you did, Carol. Although I have family members that garden besides me, other, other sisters that do that. But so I'm a lifelong gardener, and um, there's not much I don't love about it. And so you started gardening at your father's knee, but did you make it a profession? Did you go to college for gardening? Well, that's kind of an interesting story because I did go to college to study horticulture, and I got a degree in horticulture from Purdue University. And then I just couldn't seem to find the kind of job that would give me a a living. And so I ended up going back to school, and I got a computer technology degree. And so I tell people I spent 33 years making a living in healthcare IT while making a life in my garden. And I I did have the good fortune to retire from that career when I was in my late 50s. And since then, as you noted, I've been writing books on gardening, mostly humorous books, in fact, all humorous books, and one children's book. And how you got into garden writing, you just didn't jump into, hey, I'm going to write a book. You started off with a blog, right? Yes. Yes. Because I was in IT, I'd heard this thing about blogs. And so I asked this guy one time, I said, tell me about these web blogs, you know, because I've always wanted to write. You know, I, I wrote a lot in elementary school, high school, and it was always in my back of my mind that I wanted to do more writing. So he explained about blogs. And so I started a blog in 2004, posted like twice Didn't think much of it. 2005, I posted a couple more times. And then I thought, this is 
kind of boring, but somebody commented and I thought, oh, somebody's read my writing, which for an author is always very thrilling that somebody's going to read your writing. So I started blogging in earnest in 2006, and I, I still regularly post things on my blog, which I called May Dreams Gardens, because all year I dream of the days of May. I've got to get this right. When the sun is warm, the grass is green, the sky is blue, and the garden is all new again. And before we go a little bit more into our topic of the episode, let's talk about the local area that you garden in. So most of our guests on the Garden DC podcast are from the Mid-Atlantic or close by, but you are from Indiana. So let's talk about what your garden is like, what your weather is like. So I garden, like you said, in Indianapolis, Indiana. I'm technically zone 6A. But you can go to the other side of the city and they'll say that they're 5B, so I'm on the edge of a zone. So I experience the same seasons that you do in the Washington, D.C. area. But always think that you guys are a couple of weeks ahead as far as when spring happens and uh, you get a little bit longer in the fall than I do. But I've noticed that you guys have gotten a lot of snow and ice this winter and maybe more than I have here in Indiana. Yeah, we had a brutal January here in the Mid-Atlantic and after not having pretty much hardly any winters the last two years. So we really can't complain that much. But yeah, so we pretty much have a little bit longer season. A lot of our area is zone six, so can relate directly to that. And I think that you get the weather that we get a day or two later. So when you got a derecho, we got it the next day. Um, And that often happens that that same weather system just blows across and maybe gets hit by the mountains, maybe not. And we usually get hit by some of the same things. Well, but you also, don't you get hit by nor'easters that come up the coast? Yep. Yeah. So we always have that and coming off of the water, you know, the occasional hurricane can come up the coast. But on the other side of things, we don't really have tornado watches that often. Um, that can happen, but rarely. Well, that is good because the tornado, you, you get a few days on a hurricane watch, you get a few minutes on a tornado watch. But I was surprised we were talking earlier, Kathy, that you said you plant your peas on St. Patrick's Day. And I would have thought you planted a few weeks earlier than that. Well, truthfully, St. Patrick's Day is traditional pea planting time, and I think we got that from the Irish and English, but you're right. We can plant them a few weeks earlier, and last year I actually planted my peas on Valentine's Day as an experiment, and that experiment actually paid off well, and I missed that window this year, but I think I'm going to get my peas in by around March 1st this year. Which is great because the people, they don't understand sometimes it's not so much the weather around you, but the temperature of the soil. And so your soil probably warms up a bit faster than my soil does. We just had our last big snow melt. And I think the other thing that is the difference in our soil besides temperatures being a little bit warmer a little earlier is we might have a little bit more clay depending on where you are in the mid-atlantic of course there's a whole belt of sandy soil in our region Um, but a lot of us it's it's that heavy dense clay that we're dealing with not so much rocky but just compacted soils yeah and you're in an urban area aren't you Yeah, so that contributes a little more to the compaction, but I find even in the outer suburbs or at a rural farm that they're still having to deal with compacted clay soils. Yeah, and here's a universal truth about gardening is the more you know about your soil type, the better you can adjust to it 
and by adding organic matter and stuff. And it's true whether the clay soil is sitting in Indiana or it's in your garden. Adding a bunch of organic matter is always a very good thing. Mm-hmm. And I remember as a child, uh, my grandfather owned a farm in Northwest Indiana, and we spent summers there helping out at the farm. And I was in charge one day of pulling out potatoes from a row and knowing my parents garden plot at a community garden and how much work that was I was almost in tears that I was left with this chore (laughs) so I went out to the field he pointed to where the potatoes were I reached my hand in the ground and I pulled out a potato and I was like "Ah." I was like now I know why he has a farm here in northwest Indiana you know separated way out in the country from what I thought the rest of the world was. And I said, it's the soil. And it's just was incredible black loam. So I was so envious, even at that small age, that the soil could be worked to that degree. And I bet you, though, he worked the soil, too. He took care of that soil and made sure that organic matter was every year added every year and you keep heavy equipment off of it. And even in an urban garden or in a community garden, if you're able to garden on the same plot, and I think people get to sit, keep the same plot year in and year out, mm-hmm. if you add organic matter every year, you can build up your soil so that you can have that glorious moment when that potato or their carrot just pops out of the soil. Oh, yeah. And that's definitely something that after several years of contributing to your soil, that's your little moment of victory right there is, wow, I don't have to uh, keep adding. It's almost to that point that it gardens itself, right? Yes. And that that's, that's universal. So I, I have a mix of clay and I had a lot of topsoil brought in, I'll admit, when I built this house and I was going to put in a garden and the builder said, we need to bring in some fill dirt. And I said, fill dirt? What are you where are you going to get it? And he says, well, we're digging a basement and we'll just bring it over from digging that basement, which is that subsoil is not going to be a good garden soil. So I said, why don't we get topsoil to fill in? And it was a bit of an investment, but it's paid off dividends because if you start with good soil, you know, I don't want to say it's half the battle, but it's, it's better. Mm-hmm. That got you a long way there. And you're so lucky that you had the foresight to do that, Carol, that you had the knowledge. Um, because obviously most of us who buy a home, we either inherited whatever's there, or if it's a new, say, tract home, you get what you get, right, from the yep. builder. Yep. And everybody accuses builders of when they put in subdivisions of creaming off all the topsoil and selling it. And if you watch them, that's not what they're doing. They're just churning the soil up so much to put in the roads and the sewer systems and the water lines and the power and all that, that they just don't pay attention. And so you end up disrupting the soil. So, you know, whether your new garden is in the Washington, D.C. area or whether it's here, if it's a brand new place, the first thing you ought to do is figure out what kind of soil you have and then go to your local extension agent if it's not very good soil and get their help to explain what you should do to improve it. And a baseline soil test is will get you really far in that. Yes. And in your urban area, for example, do you guys have a place that will test for heavy metals and pollutants in the soil? We don't. We have to take our own soil tests and send it out to a lab, but that is recommended that most people will do that. In Virginia, you can go to your local library and they have a soil test kit that you can pick up and send in to Virginia Tech. And the rest of the area, you mostly have to purchase that at your local independent garden center or a hardware store, um, purchase that kit and the 
price of the kit includes the testing lab and results that you'll get back by email or mail afterwards. And then you would be able to interpret that from what readings they give you there. Yes. And it's important to ask, make sure they're testing for heavy metals because here in our area in Indianapolis, there are some places where it's likely the soil did get contaminated by heavy metals along the way. And so that's kind of uh, icky to grow vegetables in, especially. It wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily be a problem to grow flowers, but you don't want to grow vegetables in icky soil. Icky is the word. And when you were talking about builders churning up that soil after they've built a home, that reminded me of the thousands upon millions of weed seeds that they're also churning up in that uh, same endeavor. So let's talk a little bit about the universal gardening truth of weeds. And um, Carol, how do you feel about weeds? Um, right now I feel okay because I'm inside and they're outside and weeds can really take the joy out of gardening if you let them get away. But I always tell people that the secret to weeding is something I found in a book from, I think originated in the 1800s. The book is from the early 1900s and it was never pass a weed without pulling it out. And so pull them early, pull them as fast as you can. I think if I followed that adage, that's all I would be doing 24-7 is pulling weeds. So, <laughs> Yes. I, there's another book. It's called um, My Summer in a Garden by an, uh, uh, Charles Dudley Warner. And I think he was in Connecticut. He was a neighbor of Mark Twain's. So kind of north of that area. But he talked about a weed called, he called it Pusley. But it's purslane. And you have purslane mm-hmm. out there, right? Yep, definitely. And that's the weed. And he said it grows as if the devil is in it because you chop that off and leave it lay. It'll just root be much thicker. Mm -hmm. Keeps growing. The good thing about purslane is it is edible. Yeah, that's good. One thing you can do is you can eat your weeds. Um, But yeah, that's a good way to describe it. And, you know, Shakespeare said uh, something to the effect of flowers grow, grow slow, but weeds grow fast type of thing. And we've all experienced that in our gardening of the one that we watch, the one that we pamper, right? The one that we baby is the one that just like, ugh, it just kind of ekes along. Meanwhile, it's surrounded by weeds that just go blazing glory. And, you know, I'm kind of embarrassed. There are some weeds that I actually planted accidentally in my garden. And I know you've done the same thing, or maybe you're a smarter gardener than I am. <laughs> oh yeah, there's been a few that I've even purchased and added to my garden and now seriously regret. One of those would be mugwort. I haven't grown mugwort, but I there's a perennial sweet pea that's sort of a vine, has a pink flower, and I thought that'd be so pretty. And my grandparents had a huge patch of it along the side of the house, so it was sentimental. And I that thing went to seed and those little sprouts come up everywhere and you look at the perennial bed and then there will be these perennial peas sticking up all over and they've got roots that go deep. They are hard to dig out. Well, I can relate to that uh, because I fell in love with trumpet creeper vine. Um, It was growing over. There's a Canada Dry bottling plant down the street from me that's closed. And now it's been converted to um, a housing complex with condos. And it's a gorgeous condominium complex. But before the developer had gotten a hold of it, when it was just sitting empty, this trumpet creeper vine crept up the whole facade of this art deco bottling plant and was just beautiful orange blaze of glory. So I went over there one day, I dug a piece of the root section, brought it home. And, you know, basically 
I just gave my entire garden to that trumpet creeper vine by bringing back just a little six inch root. It was the mistake of a lifetime. Yeah, it can be a mistake. Another one is morning glory vines. You think, oh, how pretty Mm -hmm. that is. My sister let that take over her garden. And then every spring she says, make me promise to pull out every seedling I find, no matter how cute it looks twirling up the side of the gazebo or whatever. Get rid of it. Yeah, because those are underground stolons and stems. And with the morning glory one, you get that huge root that's impossible to dig all of it. Yes. And so I, I wrote in one of my books, beware of free plants because gardeners sometimes give each other plants and they probably shouldn't be doing that. And it's mostly where one gardener just doesn't understand um that the plant they're giving to the other person might just run rampant in that other person's garden and they may not like that. Mm-hmm. I always say I love plant swaps, but always question why somebody has a large amount of something to bring to a plant swap. So if somebody brings several bags full of something, like obedient plants, say, are a native that is not a very well-behaved plant, um, there's a reason that they're sharing that there. Yes, there is. Like, And spiderwort's another one that I know you have that in, around in your garden, too. That self-sows everywhere, and it's hard to get out once it's kind of decided that it likes your garden. Yeah, I just gave a talk where one of the listeners was saying that spiderwort had gotten into the crack at the base of her foundation along her house, and she could not eradicate it. It just kept coming up just because how tight that space was. And I thought that was a really hard challenge at that point to try to get, unless you can smother it somehow. Yeah, but we keep talking about this and people say, well, those two gardeners, they don't like plants very well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, dealing with weeds is is a reality of life uh, for the gardener. But how about let's talk about some of the things that we love about gardening, some of the universal truths. And I wanted to talk about fragrance and scent in the garden and not just flower scent. You know, we when we say scent in the garden, we think about, you know, lilies and or something else highly scented. But how about the scent of the soil itself? Yeah, the, uh, there's probably a name for that, but I I love walking into, say, a tropical greenhouse, no matter where it's at, and you get that fresh, that scent of soil and mulch and things. I love that scent. Mm-hmm. I love the scent after a fresh rainfall. Um, that is one of the best scents in the world. I wish they could bottle it and sell that for laundry detergent, but they just can't equal it. There's nothing else like that natural scent. I also love the scent of a freshly turned compost pile. Yes, and then there's the scent of a newly cut lawn, and I don't think you have much lawn, Kathy, but I do have a lawn, and uh, somebody actually gave me a candle that was called Cut Grass. That's that scent of which is uh, an unusual scent to like, I guess, but just just something about a freshly cut lawn. Oh yeah, yeah. I have no lawn anymore, but I still appreciate that fresh cut lawn scent. That is, you know, really quintessential, like springtime, summertime. Like when you go to a, a ball field or a play field, and you kind of walk through that, it just brings back memories. Yeah, that's the whole reason to go to a baseball game is to see how pretty the lawn is, right? <laughs> I'll take your word for it. I haven't been to a baseball game in years, but <laughs> yeah. So, but I I do have a suburban lawn and I do enjoy mowing it and trimming it and just people think that's kind of weird. But the other scent that's really kind of neat is when you crush a leaf and get a scent and mint comes to mind. 
Mm-hmm. Are you? Do you attempt to grow mint and keep it contained in your garden, Kathy? I do have a few pots of mint. I also have a little patch of mountain mint in a back corner under a big tree, so I can kind of keep that in check. Um, because even though it's a native, it can be a bit of a thug in the garden. So I try to keep that corralled a bit. But yeah, just even brushing by the mountain mint and the mint, you don't even have to crush it sometimes. You get that really evocative scent. Same thing with rosemary. That's something that Uh, A lot of people will put near an entrance just to be able to brush by that or sage. Any of those Mediterranean herbs are a great addition to the garden. They are a great addition. Now, can you can you keep Mediterranean herbs outside? Mm -hmm. Most of them are hardy for us. Um, If they fail at all, it's usually because of the heavy clay soil and that the roots might rot from sitting in too much moisture. So as long as they're given good drainage, so that could either be at the edge of a retaining wall or edge of a sidewalk or in some amended soil where you've added, say, like exploded slate or gravel to, then you can do Lavender pretty well here. Rosemary, if we had a really harsh winter, could fail. But there's a a local variety that was bred um, for the Mid-Atlantic called ARP, A-R-P, not A-A-R-P, but ARP. And that's the one that uh, local gardeners here swear by. So that's, that's interesting to me because I feel like our zones are not that different. And it gives me hope to think, well, if we both say we're sort of 6A, but you might be more closer to 6B, maybe I could get rosemary to grow because here we just consider it a lost cause if you leave it outside. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you might try ARP in your region because that is a hardy one. So I'm right here close to the city. We're definitely seven. Some more of the outer suburbs could be six. And in Pennsylvania and New York, they're, they're definitely six. And depending on what side of the hill or mountain you are, you could even be edging on five in some of those some of those uh, areas. But I was going to say on scent, going back to that when you were talking about crushing leaves, another one that I adore is the perennial geranium. Um, do you grow that, Carol? I do not grow perennial ger- geranium. Yes, I do grow perennial geranium as a ground cover. Yes, I do have some. I never think of it as having scent. I always think of the scented geraniums, which is completely different, pelargoniums. Yeah, the zonal geraniums, that's a totally different scent. And I actually don't really care for some of the zonal geranium scents. can be a little cloying, right? Um, But I do like like the lemon and the more citrusy ones. But the spiciness of some of the ground cover geraniums, I just love brushing my hand through that and weeding in that area. Um, That, I think, is a really great scent. Yeah. And of course, this, the scent of any weed that you've pulled is is a good thing to smell, right? <laughs> yeah. And you get some of the soil coming up with that. Um, I was going to say another thing that when you're close to the ground and you're working with, say, in your herb garden, that, uh, you know, around basil is always nice and dill and parsley. But an ornamental plant that I love the scent of is bronze fennel. I hadn't thought about scent for bronze fennel. I always, I'll have to think about that. I know I love to crush dill when I'm out in the garden and that does self-sow for me. Mm-hmm. Same thing with bronze fennel. We can get that to self-sow or come back if we have a mild winter. But yeah, just, you know, crushing a little bit of the the top frilly leaves or just brushing by it, you get a nice kind of, you know, light licorice scent. It's always nice. Yeah, you get a licorice scent from Agastachi, is how I say it. That has a beautiful, a beautiful, it's not the right word for a scent, but that's got a very licorice aromatic scent to it. And I like to pick those leaves off and crush them and smell them when I go by Mm. on the mower. 
So Carol, we have to talk about your hoe collection. I couldn't do this interview without talking about garden tools with you. And let's talk about how you became famous for that hoe collection. So yes, I, I claim to have the world's largest hoe collection and nobody has disputed this fact. And so what happened was, and I don't know why I decided to do this, but I was I was still working at the time. And I I just, every time I would see a garden hoe that was different from one I already had, I would buy it. And so I ended up, I had about 10. And one day I decided to pose them out in the garden and make sort of a, a slideshow. And I took it to work amongst these IT people. And we had one of those, you know, cantankerous meetings over budgets or something horrible like that. And we were at a break and I says, you want to see my hoe collection? And everybody swivels and looks at me. And, you know, they were used to me talking about gardening stuff all the time. They loved it. And so I posted it online. And then the next thing I know, people were sending me emails and says, well, I have a hoe that's different. Would you give it a try? And, you know, we sell this hoe and it's different. Would you try this? And I'm looking at hoes and I'm buying them and people are finding old hoes and saying, hey, for your hoe collection. I'm like, okay, so I have a hoe collection. I still have it. I don't post as much about it, but it's very fun. And uh, I, if you have a hoe that I don't have, I probably, you probably can't have a hoe that I don't already have in my garage. I I always picture, you know, people have these home museums of their collections, right? So somebody will have like a pinball uh, collection in their basement and uh, or a light bulb collection or something like that. So I always think, Carol, that you should like put up a sign on your garage and you should, you know, sell entrance tickets and get yourself on that, you know, weird Indiana map, you know, of of travel stops and, you know, uh, charge them a quarter to see your hose. Well, that's the thing about my collection. I don't really have uh, what you would call the provenance of every hoe. And I don't, I've forgotten the names of some of them, although they all have different names. And I, even though they're all hanging on a pegboard in the garage, and when I say hanging, it's like there's a big long peg that's 12 inches and it's got like six hoes hanging along it. Um, I don't really advertise to my neighbors that this existed in my property. So I, I think I'll, I'll wait maybe I'll move someday and then I can put the whole collection on display. That would be fun. Um, I can just imagine the tour. <laughs> but yes. And I, I, you know, people say, well, first thing I say, do you use all of them? It's like, absolutely not. In fact, uh, I have raised bed gardens. And so I usually use hand tools for weeding. I have some favorites, of course, and but not, I don't hardly use them. Sometimes I need to reach something really high and just pull it down. And so there are some hoes that are actually pretty good for reaching up and pulling down something out of a branch or something, but they just there and they're, they're fun. Well, another thing I know you collect, Carol, are old garden books. And oh, let's yes. talk a little bit about that collection. Yeah, so I have uh, quite a few old gardening books, and they tend to run on themes. And I know in your area, so when are you going to plant pansies and violas? Uh, We can be doing that now and in the next few weeks. And of course, the ones you planted in the fall are starting to spring back a bit. Yeah, so here we're still a few weeks away, um, and that is my newest obsession. And you know how that is a universal truth. You kind of get focused in on one thing, and then that's it's it's what it's all about. So my latest antique book or vintage book collection is all about different violas and pansies, and um, it's amazing. There's not that many books written on the subject, but I found some books from the early 1900s. Some of them I have. Some of them have been dispatched from England to add to my collection. But they're fun, and I love to read the old books and uh, figure out how gardening was. 
when I go back and look at some of the antique gardening books in my collection, I'm always struck by how little things have changed. Like there's been a ton of research in agriculture, you know, in the last 100 years, but a lot of it has confirmed what we already knew and what was common sense back then. But I'm always struck by the same garden calendar, the same tasks, the same timing. Um, are you struck by that same thing, Carol? I am struck by that. I'm struck by the the same love of gardening. So it just goes from generation to generation. And, you know, for somebody to sit down and write a gardening book, and I, I can't imagine how they did it in the early 1900s. They wrote it out longhand and shipped it off and somebody typed it. But I do find that not much has changed. Now, I do caution people when you read the old books, depending on if you if you read some, especially from what I call my mid-century modern books from the 1950s, for example, they may advise you using certain chemicals, which A, you cannot get, and B, you should not get to kill pests and things. So always think about the time period that it was written in, what they were doing, and the attitude towards chemicals and things. That's so true, Carol, that I didn't, I was thinking about, you know, garden books pre-1920 is what I'm usually looking at. And yeah, those mid-century books can can steer you a little bit wrong. <laughs> we'll just say from the 40s and 60s, but they are so fun to look at. I have one uh, that the Ford Corporation had published and was giving out to new homeowners along with their new car. Um, and I guess they were brand new to the suburbs, brand new to gardening. So it was a real primer and the artwork in it, the photos, the advice is just a joy to read. Yeah, that is fun. And that reminds me when I go places to speak about gardening, I went up to Detroit, Michigan area uh, several years ago and they were selling little clumps of snowdrops in bloom. And this was in March. And they were from the Ford estate in Michigan. And they had, had planted those in the mid-1900s. And they had naturalized so much that they decided to dig them all out because they're not native and sold them. And I, I bought several. So I have, I have snowdrops from the Ford estate growing in my garden. Yeah, it's always fun to have plants with a provenance that you can point to. Like I have boxwood cuttings from um, a local Catholic garden that has provenance back to the old country in Europe. And of course, seeds that you get handed down from, from your family and that sort of thing. And I was going to say about gardening books as well, that we were talking about some of the older ones that when we were talking about scent in the garden, it's kind of the scent of the book that I like too, that you, when you open up old books, that really cool paper smell. That is a good smell, unless the book is musty or was in the home of a lifelong smoker. And then it's oh, like, yeah. this book needs to air out before we can really <laughs> read it. Yeah, that's true. And some can get a little bit of the foxing or the mold on them as well. And in that case, you know, maybe put it in a sealed bag with some baking soda for yeah. a, a month or so, shake it up and, and you should be able to restore it. Yeah, and until recently, and still, most of the books are not that expensive, but every once in a while, you'll just covet one that you just have to have, and you got to put out a little bit of money for it. And so, do you do you buy the original book, or do you buy reprints? Because there are reprints for some of these books. I'm a little spoiled in that aspect, Carol, because my brother runs a 
antique print and book um, seller. And so he does that online and at local antique markets. So I get to peruse a lot of his offerings and see what he has. And I've tried not to acquire so much anymore. (laughs) I'll just say that I just try to read and put it back on the shelf um, and let somebody else buy those great old copies. But, you know, you never know what rabbit hole you're going to go down. Mm-hmm. Because I, I read a book, uh, Gardening on Main Street, by, uh, I'll have to think what her name was. I, it doesn't come to me. Her last name was Hollingsworth. And she was in Vermont. And it turned out that she had a connection to Wallace Simpson, who was the woman that uh, King George abdicated the throne to Mary. And so that was kind of interesting because they were, they grew up in the Maryland area, these sisters, Buckner Hollingsworth, that was her name. They, they actually grew up in the Maryland area where Wallace Simpson is from. And so they had gone to school with Wallace Simpson. And so I just found that book, Gardening on Main Street, at an antique store. And I thought, well, this looks interesting. And it was interesting. And I just, then I'm into all this history and you just never know where a book will take you. That's so true. And I would say that's another universal truth of of gardening is that it can relate to almost every other aspect uh, or hobby. So if you're into train collecting, you could do a miniature railroad in your garden. If you're into math, you can go a little crazy, right, in the seed starting department (laughs) and uh, using all your math statistics and plotting out your garden on graph paper and that sort of thing. So it has a lot of overlap into different aspects of our lives. But when you mention history, I would say that is a great overlap because so many plants are named after or bred by prominent people in our history. That's true. And when you talked about math in the garden, I once toured the garden of a person who taught philosophy of physics, which first of all, I didn't know physics had a philosophy. And so aspects of his garden related to physics, which was unusual. Yeah, and there's so many different theme gardens out there in the world that either somebody has created just for themselves to enjoy or it's at a public garden, like everything from uh, biblical gardens where they try to grow every plant mentioned in the Bible or similarly with Shakespeare gardens. I even have a neighbor down the street who's created a miniature version of Jamaica, the entire island of Jamaica on his side yard. Um, And so everybody has their little quirks and overlaps. So I I would say a universal truth of gardening is every garden is unique, right? Every garden talks and shows you about the gardener themselves. Yeah, there's some famous quote, show me your garden and I shall show you who you are or I'll know who you are. I can't remember who it is, but it seems to be a famous quote. Mm -hmm. So I was going to ask you, Carol, what does your garden say about you? So my garden says about me that I will say that in my, I'm in the suburbs and I'm in a, uh, I guess a neighborhood, a housing development, an addition, whatever you want to call it. And that says crazy gardening lady lives here. And I try to tone it down in the front yard. But when you plant like thousands of crocuses in your front yard and in all the beds and in the backyard and nobody else in the neighborhood is doing that, people walk by and think, hmm, I think she's into gardening. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say that I have found, and this isn't always true, but I would say 90% of the time is true. When you move onto a block, there's always one crazy garden person on that block. And then there's another one, another block away. And then there's another one, another block away, right? When I walk around my neighborhood, I don't usually see two or three crazy gardening people 
side by side. And I'm like, what if we all moved to the same block together one time? What would that look like? That would be crazy. I'll tell you though, I, I'm pretty much the only one in my neighborhood. There there are people that do a little bit of gardening, but sort of word gets out, you know, and people will walk by and they'll ask me a gardening question and I'm also very fortunate to be about a five-minute drive from a local greenhouse grower, and she grows all the pansies and violas, and we have a little ritual in the spring that as soon as they're ready, they send me a text, and within 10 minutes, I'm their first customer every spring when they open up, and I buy all my violas and pansies and get them all planted, and I know my neighbors think I'm pushing the envelope on the season, but if you can start planting them now, I'm, I'm still about two weeks out here. And knowing your local garden center or greenhouse person by name, I think that is the sign of a diehard gardener. Yes. Or or when you get a text on your birthday in January and they say, we're planting the violas in your honor today, then you know (laughs) that you got an in. Yeah, definitely. So I was trying to think of some garden truths that I learned as a baby gardener, a beginning gardener, that I would have liked to have told myself back then. Are there any things that you would have liked to have told yourself when you first moved in your house that you should have done right away that you didn't? Well, the thing I would tell people that, um, first of all, the universal truth is we're going to kill a lot of plants along the way. So not every plant's going to live. And then the other universal truth is like, you know, there's only so much time and space to garden. So I say, grow the plants you love. And if you go into an, move into an established garden and they have plants in there that you do not love, I say, get rid of them so that you can grow the plants you love. Don't, don't suffer through with, you know, I, you know, I don't like this. I don't like that. It's like, get rid of it then and put in what you like. That's great advice. And I would say, especially about just chopping off a small bit of it at a time, maybe waiting, having a little bit of patience after your first maybe year or two in a home to see what comes up. Because sometimes not all the bulbs and things bloom that first year you're in. And you'll be surprised in you know subsequent years, all of a sudden you have a peony that you didn't know about was in that bed. That That's true. And so I really am fortunate that I've started all my gardens from scratch. So I didn't have to wait, but I'm sure that in the gardens I left that people are kind of scratching their head and saying, what's she plant over here? What is that? Because I did plant some unusual things and I wasn't always able to take them with me when I moved. And that brings us to another universal truth, Carol, which is when you go to sell your house and garden, the person who buys it inevitably will wipe it out and start from scratch. It's never the same person who has the same taste in gardening. Even if you left like a beautiful garden of a succulent collection, it will be somebody who collects, you know, plum trees or something, right? So it's never going to be the match. I always think that there should be a real estate agent out there, some realtor who specializes in selling garden properties to other gardeners. But then how would you even do that matching? I don't know how you would do that matching. I had a uh, I'll call her a colleague I worked with, and she said she and her house husband looked at a beautiful home they wanted to buy, but she said it had too much garden. And I thought to myself, wow, is there such a thing as too much garden? These people are not right in the head. There can never be too much garden, right, Kathy? Nope, but I understand where she's coming from because if it's not the same type of garden that you're used to maintaining, uh, you know, it could be pretty daunting to move into something with a, a really established garden and protocol to it that can be 
fairly high maintenance, especially for the beginner. Yeah. And here's what I, uh, the other thing that I tell people is some people, they feel like they have to put like all their gardening activity in one Saturday and they work from dawn to dusk until they're exhausted. And it's like, oh, I hate this. But I tell people, if you can just subdivide that work and if you got a half an hour, go out for half an hour and don't worry that you didn't get everything done. Go out the next day for an hour, the next day, another hour. And I found even this fall when I decided to do that, that I just kind of a little bit at a time took care of some problems problem areas that I kept thinking, I've got to get to that. And I thought, I'll just get to it for an hour. I'll get as far as I can get, and then I'll come back to it the next day. And it's really amazing what you can get done. Little by little, right? You can make it done. And, you know, be easy on yourself. You know, forgive yourself. I think people are, are so demanding and perfectionist these days, especially that social media kind of breeds that with the cottage core and the other movements uh, where you see all this perfection online. I like to show the non-perfection. That's my brand, right, Carol? Is yeah. <laughs> uh, showing the dirt and the nails and the behind the scenes and the and the weeds we talked about because I want people to be realistic um, and you know a little bit easy on themselves. Exactly. There's a reason why so many of the pictures of plants that you see on social media are close-ups. If they went back about five feet, you'd see all the weeds all along the sides of that plant that's so beautiful. And so just remember, there's a lot they're not showing you. Oh, yeah. Carol, I feel seen. (laughs) I'll be sharing a lot of close-ups at this time of year, especially. Yes. And not the whole beds. Um, So in our last few minutes together, I wanted to let you share with our listeners a bit about your podcast. Okay, so I have a podcast and I do this with Dee Nash. She's in Guthrie, Oklahoma, outside of Oklahoma City. I'm in Indianapolis. We call ourselves Gardenangelists, and that's the name of our podcast. We are evangelists for gardening. We love gardening, and we want others to love it, too. So every week, we chit-chat about gardening. We have a flower topic, a veggie topic. We do some dirt, you know, some unusual things we dug up. We always talk about books, and then we talk about rabbit holes we go down, because you know how you just go down a rabbit hole, and you spend your whole week on some topic you never knew existed. Then we wrap up with what we're going to do in our gardens. We talk about the differences, but uh, because she is probably closer to you all in the timing of everything. So we always explain that. Gardening's universal, but we're local. So that's the podcast. And then let's talk about your five books, which are all part of a series, plus your children's book as well. So yes, I wrote, uh, written five humor books, and I think I can say them in order. Potted and Pruned, Homegrown and Handpicked, Seated and Sodded, Creatures and Critters, and the new one is Digging and Delighted. And with, especially with Digging and Delighted, I really tried to think about the universal themes of gardening. So whether you were in the Washington, D.C. area, or whether you were in Indiana, or Phoenix, or California, there was truths in the book that they could, that any gardener could benefit from. And then along the way, I put out a little children's book called The Christmas Cottontail, which is all about a little bunny that Santa Claus finds, and then trains the bunny. And I won't give away all the secrets, but it's just a little story about Christmas Eve and a little bunny. And we'll put links to all those books in the show notes for this episode so people can check those out as well as to your podcast. And I was going to say another universal truth that I wanted to share with the end of this is when you go plant shopping, Carol, do you always have a place in mind? Do you go with a list or do you wander around and look for something you love and then find a place for it? 
You know, it just depends on my mood. I I will go and just look to see what they have. It's like, oh, I never knew I needed that. Now I see it and I want it. Or I see it in somebody's cart. That's the universal truth. When you see a plant in somebody else's cart at the garden center, you immediately <laughs> think it's a better plant than you ever thought. And you want it for your own garden. So you hope that it wasn't the last one. Mm-hmm. That is so true, Carol. I have been the one to wheel carts full of plants around a garden center and been stopped, you know, every five feet of where'd you get that? Yes. And I told the local garden center, I said, you just need me to come down and run a wagon up and down the aisles and with the plants that you want to get sold the most. And I says, I'll talk people into buying them. That is the truth. I think we should make a new profession of a garden shopper. Yeah. Uh, We'll be mystery shoppers that make everything look attractive just by putting it on a cart. All right. So any final advice for newbie gardeners or veteran gardeners uh, and how they can find more humor in their gardening? Well, they can find humor on my blog, which is you can go to maydreamsgardens.com and it'll redirect you to my website, which is caroljmichael.com slash blog. So they can get there. I try to write about humor in the garden. And, you know, when you just covered from head to toe with dirt and mud and sweat, you're probably still going to have a smile on your face if you spent that time in a garden. Thank you so much, Carol. Well, thank you, Kathy. My pleasure. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Paperbush Plant Profile Paperbush, Edwardia chrysantha, has flowers that are fragrant and showy in the late winter landscape. The blooms resemble upside-down parasols and are long-lasting, often hanging in for six to eight weeks in the garden. The paperbush's flaky reddish-brown bark was used to make paper and is quite attractive. It is a plant of the woodland edge often found growing along the banks of streams in its native habitats in China and the Himalayas. It prefers to be planted in dappled shade and well-drained soils. This shrub is not troubled by pests or diseases and is long-lived under favorable conditions. It is hardy to zone 7 to 10, though gardeners in zone 6 could attempt it if they can offer the paper bush a well-sheltered area of their property. Edgeworthia offers multi-season appeal. When fully leafed out, the shrub has a tropical appearance. In the fall, its leaves turn bright yellow before they are shed. Most cultivated forms of paper bush are yellow flowering. A commonly available cultivar is gold rush. There are also reddish-orange flowered varieties such as red dragon and acabono. Edgeworthia, you can grow that. Celebrate spring with four exciting gardening books and their authors. This free online party takes place on Thursday, March 24th at 7 p.m. Eastern. It is sponsored by National Garden Bureau and Garden Communicators. 
During this live webinar, you'll get to virtually meet the four authors and learn some of their best gardening tips. Those authors are Sean and Allison McManus, Christy Wilhelmy, Raphael Delalo, and Tony Gatoni. Attendees will also have a chance to win one of three gardening giveaways. Register for this free webinar at ngb.org, select the Education tab, and scroll down to Webinars. See you there. What's new in the garden this week? Well, I bundled up and ventured over to my community garden plot across the street. A lot of things are still hibernating, but I was happy to see garlic had emerged and put up its little green growth. I still had some arugula and spinach under cover cloths. And below the cover crop of mustard greens, I had seeded in turnips last fall and they're pretty big. They're about the size of softballs. Um, several of them are decaying and I'm going to leave them in the ground that way for a little bit longer to add some nutrients back to the soil. But I was also able to dig a few and bring them into the kitchen and I'll be cutting them up and seeing if they are still edible and useful in that way. If not, I'll just compost them. So back home, I have several of the spring ephemeral, late winter, early bulbs starting to bloom, including winter aconite, crocus, snowdrops, and the earliest of my daffodils, February gold and tete-a-tete, look like they're going to burst open any second. I also have three pots of tulips that I've forced indoors, and they are about two or three days away from full bloom. So I'll be sharing pictures of those on my Instagram account at WDC Gardener. So look out for those. I also wanted to take a second to thank one of our latest listener supporters, Lynn Turner. Thank you so much for your support of this podcast. Because of listeners like you, it keeps on going. And we love for you to share the word about this podcast to your fellow gardeners. So let others know who are interested in gardening that this podcast is free and available to anybody who would like to listen to it. In the local gardening world, I have several talks coming up. Um, the first one is on Friday, February 25th on Roses 101. And this one is hosted by Homestead Gardens and it is virtual. So anybody can sign up for that at homesteadgardens.com. It is 7 p.m. Eastern time in the evening. And like the title might indicate to you, it is a beginner roses talk, but I'll be talking about some tips and tricks so if you are a experienced or veteran rosarian, you might get something out of it as well. So I encourage you to attend that. And then on Saturday, February 26th is our Washington Gardener Seed Exchange at Brookside Gardens in Wheaton, Maryland. We are almost full on that, but a few tickets remain and that you can register for at wgseedxbrownpapertickets.com. Uh, the next workshop I have for is 
for Homestead Gardens, and that is a Sunday afternoon talk, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on February 26th, seed starting for the spring and summer garden. So we'll be talking about indoor seed starting, but also direct sowing. And again, you can sign up for that at homesteadgardens.com. And then I have a talk for Green Spring Gardens, again, virtually, and that is Saturday, March 5th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, getting the most out of small space urban gardens. And that has a nominal fee of $15. You can register for that through fairfaxcounty.gov parks or by calling Green Spring Gardens. Happy gardening, everyone. In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jensen, Terry Spite, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space, while also making a lush outdoor living area you'll crave spending time in. The Urban Garden, 101 Ways to Grow Food and Beauty in the City, comes out this spring. You can pre-order it now at Amazon.com and Bookshop.org. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.